Welcome to the Chamber of Musical Curiosities, a podcast exploring the world in and around Music Aviva Australia. Hello, I'm Paul Kilday, Artistic Director of Music Aviva Australia, and I'm here today with oboist and anglais player, but that hardly gets to the crux of it, does it, Celia Craig? <laughs> it's a delight to be here with you, Celia. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, someone with your uh, lovely accent didn't grow up in Goulburn, that much is, is clear. Um, I've had the great privilege recently of um, having some correspondence with your father, who of course was at, at Cambridge as a student of F.R. Levis in the 1960s, and as a student encounters a young peer, John Elliott Gardner, who, who mutters about founding a new choir uh, known as the Monteverdi Choir. And I say all this just as a way of introducing you because it at least gives some context to the rather special and unusual musical background that you come from, which then takes you from this kind of really engaged childhood um, in the highest possible areas of arts to the Purcell School for your own secondary schooling, and then, of course, to the Royal Academy of Music. So I, I, I am interested, I'm always interested in, or, in origin stories, so perhaps you could talk just a little about, a little bit about that and, and how your father was this kind of encouraging force in your life. Oh, yes. Well, thank you. I mean, I didn't have much choice about being musical. The, the name <laughs> means musical, Saint Cecilia, Saint, patron saint of music. So when I was little, I remember being literally carried around to all these top rehearsals, such as uh, the Monteverdi Choir starting. And that was quite regular. I also being, remember being incredibly involved as a eight-year-old in my dad putting on Britain's Noah's Flood, which is an opera that you all know extremely well. That was when we were living in Germany and he was taking a job in Germany in an English school and he made all the kids in the school become animals. And I wasn't an animal, even though the primary school were involved in that uh, opera. I was actually a violinist for those who prefer to play on the open strings. <laughs> so I was originally, I, I, was, I was a violinist and I started, I was very lucky to be put into Kent Junior Music School, which was run by the marvellous ex-pupil of both Hindemith and Kodai, whose name was Bella de Chileri. And I went mm. into that school at age nine when it was supposed to be for high school. Um, this is a Saturday morning sort of school, uh, music school in a medieval bishop's palace in Maidstone. And I walk past that building now because my sister lives near it in the days when we can travel to England. And her uh, son sings in the choir or used to sing in the choir Aww. next door. So there's a nice generational thing because my father had also been a member of Kent Junior Music School and his best friend there was a singer called Philip Langridge. Although at that Gosh. time he was actually a violinist called Philip Langridge. Yes, he was a, a violinist, and um, and then of course everyone who's listening to this will realise that Philip became you know one of the most astonishing tenors and musical artists. And I say musical artist because he was so musical as a great singer in the latter part of the 20th century, early part of this one. I, I'm going to pick you up on something because people won't necessarily note or pick up on the the wry way that you said that you played the violin in Noah's Flood for those um, who are happiest on the on the open string. <laughs> Perhaps you better explain that uh, particular designation in the score. Isn't that lovely? That's the third violin part that Britain wrote because it was uh, intended as a community opera. I just remember my dad saying, oh, this is absolutely perfect because uh, there are parts for... Um, People who, who can only play on open strings, look at that, you can do one of those. You'll be able to join the orchestra. So I had to join this teenage German orchestra with massive flares and they, they were just <laughs> such huge kids. And it was the same at Kent Junior Music School, actually. I remember throughout my musical life, I was always, I'm still 
I'm quite tall, so it's not because I was a short person, but I was always looking up to people I was working with because it was just the way that my group of wonderful teachers had, had always put me into things with people older than me. And it is something I really feel very strongly about because that, that extends you. And especially when you're an oboist, that's quite common because, you know, we are slightly more unusual. So you often end up getting promoted into a string group with, I mean, for in my case, I had to play the, the Bach oboe and violin concerto with Kenneth Silito, who was the leader of the English oh, Chamber Orchestra wow. when I was about 16. But before that, I remember playing Messiah with, with professional players and I was sort of 12 something playing in it because the oboists do tend to get promoted. I have a, a small memory of a student of mine in New Zealand who, uh, I, I didn't live in New Zealand, but I used to go and see her mum and teach her quite a lot. And she played Gabriel's oboe in front of 10,000 people when she was 10 years old. But, you know, it's because she was the only oboist in town. She did it and she was really good. And also, if you were a certain age when that film came out, of course, people will remember it's the film The Mission. Mm. Uh, you got asked to play that, didn't you? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, look, that's an incredible film. And if you think about it, Jeremy Irons has probably done more for oboe take-up worldwide than any other non-oboist. <laughs> By playing that and, and doing it so beautifully, I, it's the last reference I'll make to Noah's Flood, but mm -hmm. um, it's a good way of pivoting into a question that I would have thought you'd get a bit, um, which is that, of course, Noah's Flood is full of all these recorder parts as well. And that's often a path, or it's sometimes a path, for, uh, between a young uh, person encountering music for the first time and then graduating to oboe. Was that the case with you? Exactly. Well spotted. <laughs> So it was a violinist that played some recorder because my dad used to say, look, in the Baroque world, everybody just plays violin, the treble instruments, the violin, the, the recorder and the flute. They're all interchangeable. Just play them all because everybody did. So I, I was always sort of thrown in the deep end like that. But I loved playing the recorder. I absolutely loved it. I played it for years and I miss it. In fact, only uh, a few months ago, I doubled um, recorder in a Baroque instrument version of Asis and Galatea and everybody was laughing at me for getting a recorder out. But I mean... I still feel as if when I was 15, I was quite good at it. So that is the pathway. And we have lost it a lot in schools because people don't do as much recorder, which is sad because it feeds into oboe playing so well. Yeah, it does. It, look, it feeds into so many things. It's just nice that in, on this instance, it, there is something natural about going from this instrument in C to another beautiful instrument in C. I, you said something a moment ago which I, I would have asked anyway if I had uh, plucked up the courage, which was, <laughs> is that oboists are, are a certain type of personality. And, and I don't know whether it's because it's a really difficult instrument to play, because of all the pressure in performing it, because of being kind of the leader of the woodwinds in an orchestra if you go that route. I, I mean, what is it, do you think, that, that marks out the personality of an oboist in a certain way? Yes, and we have cliches in orchestras and it starts from youth orchestras and you're like oh they're the brass players or they're the the string players and the oboists always have been the individuals and I think you could say to master it you have to be kind of slightly maverick maybe you have to be determined and uh, slightly individual but I think it's all the reed making really it's basically the reed making that drives you slightly nuts and uh, or more than slightly in some cases, I mean, including myself at times. So persistence is, is necessary. And then I'm always wondering if it's a bit chicken and egg as well with these, um, the idea of the cliches of different instruments is also slightly something that you, you get into the orchestra and you think, well, maybe we, 
we maybe we play up to that a little bit. But it's also the fact that the oboist has their own part and the string players don't. And so when I transitioned from violin to oboe, unwillingly, I have to say, I didn't really want to give up the violin, but in the strings, I was always a member of a big group. So then you're not as, I don't, that's that's a horrible thing to say. I'm not saying you're not as responsible, but you kind of can't be because you're a group player. So you can't be the only one that's ahead of the beat or the only one that's on the beat when everybody else is behind. And the Mm. oboist has to be. So you do have to become a more determined sort of self-reliant character when you play the oboe anyway. So that's definitely true. Well, no, that's certainly a, a sense of personality and leadership that comes, of course, at exactly the time in your in your teens when you're defining the type of person that you really are going to be as an adult. So it's it's interesting that these two things come together. Hey, just you, you better talk about it very briefly, but there's so much else we, we're going to touch on. But just the read making. So non-musicians are not going to realise that they're going to think of, oh, well, the, the trumpeter just comes and picks up his yes. 7C mouthpiece, throws it in and away he goes. Um, tell us a little bit about what's involved uh, for your instruments. Well, I, I'm sure that trumpeters will disagree with me when I say, oh, you just stick your mouthpiece in and play. And I'm sure there's a lot more that goes into it. However, mm. and Ross Lortis <laughs> will also say that it's all about, you know, well, the thing is you can change your read, but we're stuck with the lips and that kind of thing. But yes, the read making, I mean, you have to be able to find a setup because I'm very into this right now because I'm just trying to do the same thing for Baroque Oboe, trying to set myself up with Baroque Oboe. And you need to find a read setup that that is consistent. There are so many variables, the width of the read, the length of the read, the type of, of staple that you put it onto, the quality of it, so the, the type of cane, whether it's come from a very sunny country. It's like wine, the, the cane. It's incredible because people are always talking about the the earth that it grew from and the climate and the microclimates of different parts of France and uh, the best cane comes from Europe. Uh, we always like the Mediterranean, usually French cane. I'm, I'm into Spanish cane right now. And then you, you um, spend ages and ages binding it all on together and you spend ages and ages and ages learning how to sharpen your knives and to, to tie on straight reeds. And then you scrape it and then probably four out of ten are reasonable. And then one out of 10 is the one you're going to play on. So, yes, when I was principal oboe of the Adelaide Symphony for nearly a decade, that in particular, there are different types of reeds you need for different pieces. Same when I was principal uh, cor in the in the orchestra, I discovered that there are certain composers that ask for a really difficult read. Elgar, I don't know why it's Elgar. He just wants the best cor reed you can possibly make. He wants you to play loudly with the cellos all the time and then some perfect tiny solo like four notes up high. So you just have to have the perfect read for certain composers in particular. And I remember, I remember friends who would mourn the passing of a beautiful reed that had stood by them for a very long time. That's a very good segue, actually, talking about your, your tenure and your love of the corps anglais. I'd love you to talk about the, how you characterise them. I always think of the corps anglais as Mahler and the oboe as Strauss, but I'm sure you have a far more sophisticated way of viewing it. Well, that's rather nice, yes. I mean, having uh, gone straight into an orchestral career on corps anglais, which I wasn't really kind of prepared for I mean I don't maybe none of us are we just picked out and suddenly we're the soul of the whole orchestra I mean you know five minutes ago you're in youth orchestra and and you don't even know what those woodwind instruments are the other side of the the hall are even called because <laughs> uh, you're busy playing away in the strings and then the next minute you're a professional corongle player and you know Tchaikovsky is coming up or whatever you are absolutely the soul of the orchestra actually in terms of a sort of voicing it always made me feel like the viola player that my violin teachers always wanted me to be. 
I mean, they, they were always saying, look, you should try the viola, you know, you really should try the viola. And I just couldn't be bothered to read the clef. It was just too difficult to learn new clef fingering. But that tenor feeling that you get on the uh, on the coronglais is really special. And I actually, I loved it. I did probably, I don't know, 20 years on, on coronglais in England and guesting with London Symphony and other orchestras. And there's these terrifying moments, for example, in Shostakovich symphonies where you're you're just left alone and you've got this big plaintive mournful solo or Sibelius or something in, in, in Swan of Tonella. And I had to learn to do some acting actually in those things. It's the same with oboe slightly, of course. When you're principal oboe, you, you have a bit of a prima donna there and you have to act that. But with the corps anglais, if you think of Shostakovich 8, for example, or 11 as well, but 8, where it's like a nuclear bomb's gone off and the whole orchestra's just obliterated everything and there's one solo lonely coronglay left and people used to come to me for lessons in London and say how do you do this without shaking because the tv cameras are on and you're you're in the Albert Hall and I'd say well actually you are supposed to shake you're supposed to be scared so act scared don't be scared but act it and if you channel the scaredness through acting then you can actually channel all sorts of you know, roles, which is what the whole orchestra, all of your colleagues will, literally the whole viola section will turn around and expect you to play something just to express what they want that moment to be. So it's incredible responsibility. And the oboe is kind of the same but higher and more squeaky, really. That's kind of it. (laughs) More pressure. Music Aviva Australia would like to thank our wonderful concert and education partners, generous donors and concert champions for supporting us this year. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that those years in London in those big orchestras, and we're going to play a game, and I'm just going to throw some uh, one-word conductor names at you and respond however you'd like. Rattle. Um, curly scary. <laughs> well, let's try Boulez then <laughs> for oh, something softer. A, a total gentleman. <laughs> he was gorgeous. Loved him. Oh, okay. High tink. Old school. Even more of a total gentleman. And the funny thing about Boulez was, oh, sorry, it's one word, sorry. I won't do it. No, I can say one word, you can run with it. Oh, okay. So uh, the difference between Boulez and Heitink was that they both came in, I think, in the same year when I was in BBC Synth. And they were both on birthdays. We, we definitely did Boulez's 80th birthday. And everybody was waiting for him to be cross. And they were going to be scared of him because when he had been principal conductor, of the BBC synth, he was actually in very acerbic, precise, well, we were doing Daphnis as well. So he, he they were saying, oh, last time he was here, he was making the piccolo and the bass clarinet play their demi their demi-semis together in, in octaves and saying it wasn't right. Oh dear, what will this be like? And he was actually an absolute angel. But because I was chairman for both of those, I had to see them quite a lot. And when Heitink came in, both of them surprised us with their sense of humour. They were very relaxed and, and lovely sense of humour. And I would say that the Boulez, Daphnis, it was a changing point. It was a it was the highlight of my career. And I actually left for Australia because of that. Because when Richard, my husband, who's Australian from Sydney, when he said he wanted to go back, I thought, well, look, I did Daphnis and Chloe with Boulez at, at the proms or in the Barbican, actually. And it was the best thing. So anyway, sorry, carry on with the oh, conductors. This is great. It's beautiful. One more for me, which is uh, Gergiev. Oh, yes, cocktail stick. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how he conducts. He's got his cocktail stick as this long. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It, and he shakes as well. It's really weird. But he's a complete magnetic musician. And it, it was a total honour and privilege to work for him. But it's always chaos because he always arrives late and then 
I remember my BBC Symphony producer saying to me, oh, so you're going to do that uh, LSO gig with Gergiev. Great. Well, I'll see you there because I've got to come and interview him at break. So I was waiting for her to turn up because I'd done an attachment as a BBC producer as well with Anne. So I knew her quite well. And she turned up at the Barbican and stood in a queue to talk to Gergiev in a break, who was talking on four phones at once. And he had a queue of about three people who were supposed to see him at lunchtime. And she was just looking at me going, well, uh, you know, I'm not sure. And he'd always also arrived two hours late for the rehearsal. And that was the same when we went on tour as well. When you mentioned uh, Philip Langridge and, of course, your relationship with uh, Judith Weir, there are amazing people that you were just part of this generation, or perhaps it's always the case in, in Britain, that there's a generation coming through and, and of just astonishingly well-trained and then just amazing figures on, on the cultural landscape. I, I wouldn't mind hearing about some of those composers with whom you've had a close creative relationship, perhaps starting with Judith. Oh, well, yes, thank you. Judith's concerto that she wrote, uh, the ASO commissioned for me, is her first oboe concerto and she was an oboist. And I knew that because also uh, about 20 years before, as director of the Spitalfields Festival, she'd asked me if I'd played Poulenc Sonata on the radio. And I was really nervous because it was early in my career and this was an actual sonata and it was the most famous one. And she said, well, yes, also because I know it really well. And I thought, well, that's made it even worse now because you know it really well because she used to be an oboist. But the way we knew each other, this was before she became Master of the Queen's Music, both of those events, actually, the original commissioning of the concerto. She hadn't been appointed the Queen's own composer at that stage. But I knew her because she was at Spitalfields Festival and I was very involved with Jane Manning and Tony Payne. We were like their children. They came to York University and selected a group of us and started a contemporary music group. And if you Wikipedia Jane's Minstrels, it literally talks about a new generation of people. And I, I wasn't, I mean, Wikipedia wasn't around then. There was no internet. So I wasn't really aware of how privileged we were to be in Jane and Tony's house all the time. And the fact that both of them have passed away now within a month was really sad. And there best friend was Judith Weir. So we spent a lot of time playing Tony's music, playing Judith's music, playing other really interesting composers like Nicola Lofanu or Elizabeth McConkie. Also that early school of Peter Warlock, post Vaughan Williams kind of uh, English music as well. And that was a great period. But then moving to the BBC Symphony Orchestra, my first day of work, Berio was conducting as well. So that was quite uh, interesting because you got... You know, I, I was aware of the authentic movement, of course, because at York, when I was at university there, we all played on Baroque instruments and that generation have now become the new front Baroque people. And my dad, of course, being involved in Monteverdi Choir and Christopher Hogwood as well and all those people. I knew about the authentic movement, but when I went to BBC Symphony, they started making me realise that we were doing authentic contemporary music because we were authentically playing Boulez, Plea Salon Plea, with Boulez. Actually, not Judith Weir as conductor. She's like, I hand over to a professional conductor and I sit quietly in the background and make comments. So she's beautiful like that. But some of the composers who are good at conducting and who do it well, for example, Berio on my first day at the BBC Symphony Orchestra, um, John Adams as our artist in residence. So we worked with him very closely, including the um, last night of the proms, the first one after 9-11, and he'd written his piece the transmogrification of souls piece and that was like its premiere uh, or course, something and we course, and in the security yeah. we were terrified about that that yeah. wasn't a it wasn't a very fun gig but john was right onto it it was great and at my very first day of professional work george benjamin conducting the halle orchestra 
in a program of his music and Ligeti, and I'd done some of that at York, so I knew I knew a bit more about George Ligeti's music. Beautiful stuff. But I wasn't, I'd never played in the Halle before, and all the orchestras have their own personalities. And there I could just give my A, or just start and give the A. And I'm straight out of college as well, so this is really embarrassing. And we have a rehearsal in the Zion Institute in a dodgy bit of Manchester where if you park in the car park, you have to pay somebody to stop the vigilantes getting your car. It was very, very terrifying kids throwing things at our cars and stuff and all these musicians walking in and then just going in to play this contemporary music. And then George Benjamin called me up and he said, excuse me, Oboe, <laughs> do the orchestra always play this behind the beat? <laughs> and I was thinking, I don't know, it's my first day. I've no idea. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, contemporary has got to be just right. But anyway, I, I love the idea that you can feel exactly how the composer wanted their piece to go. So you're getting their their vision, their full vision, including when Morricone came to Adelaide and we did Gabriel's oboe with him. That was very authentic, wasn't it? Yeah. It's interesting because uh, not every composer is a very good conductor, but that list uh, that you've just given us is each person a, a great executant of, of the podium as well as of how they write their music. And it's good to hear as a conductor, someone like Judith Weir saying, well, actually, this is a really specialised skill and I'm going to hand it over to the, um, the specialist, which is such a kind of bond, isn't it? You know, a gesture of trust. And, mm. um, and then you always hope in those circumstances that that trust is rewarded. I'm not saying, Celia, that you've hung up that particular uh, symphonic or orchestral hat, but you've got a, a pretty interesting um, series of projects at the moment. And I know we've, we've relied on you a lot, and I know a lot of your background anyway is in chamber music, but we've joyously programmed you a lot in, in South Australia this year. But you've also been doing something for us uh, most recently, a project in Mount Gambia um, with a great colleague of yours. And it's a very particular project because it touches on a part of your personality, a part of the way that you view the world. So I wonder if you could bring all those threads together. Yes, thank you. Well, the opportunity to do Colours of Home, a schools project through Music of Eva in schools, has been a little bit like doing a PhD in some ways because the idea of drilling down right into the question and saying, what is this project about, what we're trying to do? And I remember facilitated so brilliantly by Music of Eva. And I'm somebody who experiences music through colour. And I don't quite know how to exactly explain all of this, but I'm, I'm a synesthete. And the actual term for music and colour in this case is chromesthesia. And that was the original working title of our group. And then we ended up calling it Colours of Home because... When you have chromesthesia, when it's really strong especially, which is when the music's in flow, each harmonic key has a different, quite distinct colour. And of course, the music always comes home in its harmony as well to beginning and end of the music. And so your beginning and your end for me is the colour. Like uh, if it's in G, it's a red piece and then it finishes in red as well. So uh, we've used that as a way of drawing out with the children, we describe our feelings about colour and then we draw from them their feelings about colour and, and landscapes as well. So I should explain more about synesthesia is it's incredibly intense feelings and also you get these kind of vistas and pictures in front of you. This is in my case anyway. I often get event horizons or nighttime stars, that's the second movement of Mozart's oboe quartet, or um, a massive great long event horizon, like a perspective that seems like a glimpse of perfection. You actually want to go and touch it. 
And that's also associated with really strong feelings of euphoria and stuff. So there's two things that come out of that. Orchestrally, that's quite hard to experience all the time because there are so many personalities involved in playing the music that for it to go in the way that for me seems like perfection, you know, happened during Boulez's Daphnis and Chloe, and I felt that was some sort of peak. And certain pieces where I expect certain colours, if another conductor does it in a different way and they don't come, it's you get the opposite effect, not the euphoria, but the depth of despair, like yeah, somebody's the, literally the poured yeah. yeah, concrete on your head. Actually, I never set out to play in an orchestra. Of course, I loved the sound, the repertoire as well. You know, those big Mahlers you mentioned, Mahler and Strauss. Yeah, great. That's exhilaration in itself, of course. But I went when I was at the Academy, I remember saying to the staff on the Academy board, the Royal Academy, uh, I remember she said Celia Nicholson, another Celia, was the principal oboe teacher at the time. And she was saying, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd like to play chamber music and temp- contemporary music. And she said, well, you can't. Sorry, why don't you want to get a job in an orchestra? And I said, well, because I'm not good enough. I can't, I'm not reliable enough on the oboe. I used to be a violinist. You know, I've only been playing it for two years, really. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to get the sound out on the time when everybody's watching you and you've got to play this big solo. And she said, well, it's my job to teach you that, though, isn't it? She said, that's why you're at the Academy. By the time you've left, you'll be able to do it. So, of course, I went for the orchestral auditions and I managed to get a job the second I got out of the Academy. And I was a choranglay player in Bournemouth Symphony straight away. And there goes the chamber music, though, because you can't really do it because you're committed to the orchestra all the time. It's a full-time job. That's what you're supposed to do. Or else you've got, in my case now, you get, you've got such loud orchestral stuff that you, don't, you can't really, the tinnitus is getting on your nerves. And so you want some quiet and not pay some chamber music afterwards. So I've actually made the choice now to stop being full-time in orchestras so that I can finally do the chamber music and contemporary, definitely Baroque and contemporary as well, really. That's what I wanted to do in the first place. And the music of Viva in schools really fits in so beautifully with that because playing in a duo is great fun. I'm getting the synesthesia back that used to be so strong when I was a teenager. I think it's age-related as well. Talis Fantasia could not see the conductor. I was playing the, the lead violin part. It's just seas of red and all sorts of colours everywhere. So it might. I was afraid it was going to vary with age, but I think it's more to do with it varies with the type of music you're playing and the kind of flow in performance. Even being able to say that, and I know that in Mount Gambia, for instance, there was a a young child who kind of had this sparkling moment of self-recognition. Talk a little bit about that. We we sent you off there, funded by federal RISE funding. You know, you just kind of think if ever there's some, an immediate response to a crisis, and then what came from that um, immediate response is rather gorgeous in this instance. Yes, it was lovely. So, Casper Hawksley and I, who is a jazz guitarist from the Elder Conservatorium and composer. He is much younger than me. He's also my son's best friend. So that's how I know him. And his mother's a friend of mine. So it's also been very interesting working with somebody who's, you know, 20 years younger than me, at least 20. He's making me play a lot of improvisation. And that's marvellous because that's something you don't do in orchestras. Obviously, you play exactly what's written on the page. So we're improvising away. And we've also had this wonderful commission from Indigenous composer, Music Aviva Commission from Will Kepper. And it was his piece, Will Kepper's piece, actually. We were playing in a school in Mount Gambia. And Casper asked the audience, did anybody see any colours? Could you describe some landscape that Will's from Torres Strait, so we talked to them about how he's writing about being in a boat and there's sparkling waters and stuff. So sparkling had already been suggested, but 
this little girl put her hand up and she said, oh, yes, there was blue and there was green and they were competing. They were pushing against each other. And then there were some stars up here in the right-hand side. And then later on the piece, some stars were lilac and appeared down the bottom. And I absolutely lost it. I, I, I burst into tears because you to have somebody describe exactly what's in your head for synesthesia is so unlikely. I mean, it's incredible. I've met one other person who has exactly the same colours as me, and she's more extreme, actually. She has tastes and textures like amethyst and stuff. We get a bit of texture as well, but but Jennifer has tastes. But this other lady is sort of 75 and lives in Switzerland, so I've only met her via Facebook. So to actually be standing there in the room with nine-year-old Mackenzie, who had described exactly what I see, and all the staff were looking at each other going, she's never said that before. So that was also really nice. And then when we got home that evening, I couldn't do the interview with her. I really couldn't. Emily Kelly, the, your uh, South Australian lovely representative, she did an interview to camera with her. And I couldn't take part because it was it was too moving. It was too overwhelming. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was just incredible. But then I got this friend request. It was actually LinkedIn friend request. And I looked at it and it said a uh, lady from Mount Gambier and it was her mother and she said she's never told me this before and this explains a lot and then I've got these incredible letters from her saying oh I feel all these amazing feels now in my body when I'm listening to music and you've unlocked this and I have a gift and they tell me so I'm really pleased because synesthesia is not always received as a gift by everybody else it can be a sort of mark you out what are you doing get back in your box sort of thing so that's why you don't normally mention it and also, you think it's normal. I mean, you assume everybody else has it. Celia, I, I feel as though that you haven't even started your career yet. You've, you, you've already done the most amazing things. And I know our conversation will continue beyond this half hour. And I just can't wait to uh, continue it and to keep making interesting projects with you. Thank you, Paul. That sounds wonderful. Thank you. Uh, the, the Music of Viva Colours of Home project is like a life-changing thing for me. I'm loving it. Oh, well. Those stories and more uh, have just warmed my heart today. So thank you, Celia Craig. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can find show notes for the episode on our website, musicaviva.com.au forward slash podcast. To learn more about our work and upcoming concerts, find us on Facebook by searching Music Aviva Australia and on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Music Aviva AU. Thanks again and see you next time.